Good morning. Well, we had a good summer at the ranch, uh, a very good summer. Uh, I don't have the numbers with me, but um, we saw uh, many kids come to Christ this summer. The Lord's hand was on uh, our ministry, and, uh, and he did get glory from it. So uh, I'm grateful for your involvement in the ministry in the past and your continuing involvement. I'm grateful that you send your kids there. Uh, I'm grateful that we have the chance to, to pour into their lives. Turn with me to Psalm 73. It, it's, it's good for us, no matter what state we're in. So I don't know you and you don't know me, so I have no idea the state of your heart this morning. You may be excited, you might be tired or frustrated or in pain or disappointed or, or jubilant or expectant. But whatever state we're in, it's good. It's good for the people of God to take a moment and to examine our souls to see where we are, and to see how Scripture meets us where we are. And the Psalms are so good for this. Uh, The psalmist, uh, again and again, has this conversation in his own soul. So, let's uh, go to Psalm 73. Um, I'd like to read it. Uh, I'm reading out of the um, ESV. Uh, I know that the Pew Bibles are in the NIV, and I think that's good. Um, but uh, as, as we walk down through the psalm, we're going to pay particular attention to the structure of the psalm. We'll find that the structure itself preaches. Um, the psalms are poetry, of course, and the best poetry in any language and in any age is well-structured, and so I think that's what we'll find here. But, uh, but we'll get there. Let, let me read the psalm. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped For I was envious of the arrogance when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus... I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you have set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. 
first thing that we, we need to note is that the psalmist lays the groundwork for, for this conversation that he's about to have with his soul by affirming this truth. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. What's the foundation? God is good. God is good to his people. The word truly appears three times in the psalm. It appears in verse 1, verse 13, and verse 18, and it marks three different truths. Now, the NIV is going to translate that as surely. Surely God is good to Israel. Uh, the, now, the ESV, uh, to my chagrin, uh, translate this as, as three different words. Truly God is good to Israel. All in vain I've kept my heart clean. Uh, or two different words. And then truly you've set them in slippery places. But it's the same word. It's the same, uh, same marker. Three different foundational truths. So the psalmist sets us up with this foundational truth that God is good to Israel. Truly, surely God is good to Israel. And then he enters this statement that, that seems to jar with this affirmation of truth, this contrastive statement. God's good to Israel, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. Sure, God's good to Israel, but I've almost lost it. I went right up to the edge, says the psalmist, and I nearly stepped over. I nearly slipped. Why was he nearly slipping? What was his near downfall? Why is, is Asaph standing on the outside, seemingly, looking at God's goodness to Israel and saying, I'm unable to enter in? Why is that? And he says in verse 3, I was envious. I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. That's his reasoning. And that's the problem, isn't it? The prosperity of the wicked. Why is that a problem? That's <laughs> a problem because the psalmist has a certain way of viewing the world. And, and in fact, the, the psalmist views the world in much the same way that Job's friends viewed the world. Do you remember Job's friends? Here's their logic, and here's the psalmist's logic. They've got three, uh, three premises here. Here's the way that, the, that Job's friends view the world. God deals with his creatures on the basis of their performance. So he rewards those who do good, and he punishes those who do evil. And this system can be manipulated for man's benefit. So uh, that's the way that when Job's friends talk to Job, Job, uh, God is good. This is what they keep reminding him. God is good. He's mighty. He's created all things. He upholds all things. And he does good to those who are good. But bad things are happening to you, Job. Therefore, you must have done evil. Repent of your sin. And, and again and again, Job says, but, but no, I haven't done anything. That's what the psalmist has this same logic at the beginning of the psalm. This is how the world works in Asaph's mind. And so, of course, God is good to Israel. Why? Because Israel is pure of heart. Israel worships God. Israel does what is right. But then there's this problem. According to the system, the wicked should be getting their comeuppance. They ought to be receiving the due penalty for their error. But they're not. Not only are they not getting the punishment that they deserve, but the wicked are prospering. The wicked are prospering, and poor Asaph has nearly fallen to ruin because of his own envy. So in verse 4 we continue, The wicked have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. This means that, that they're, they're well-fed, they're healthy, they have no trouble as other men. There's no plagues falling on the wicked. They're perfectly healthy. This kind of prosperity, he says, rather than making them humble and grateful, is an occasion for further pride. He says they wear their pride like a necklace. So God is blessing them, and instead of turning around and thanking God for his blessings, 
they just grow in pride and they continue to insult the Most High. They wear their pride as a necklace. They abuse their fellow mankind. Violence is as natural to them as a garment. And so now the wicked are heaping sin upon sin, and it does not stop there. These wicked, they get worse. Their eyes swell out through fatness. They're more than well-fed. They're grossly overweight. To get fat in the ancient world, you had to have money. I mean, you had to live a life of ease. It's not sort of the default state like it is for you and for me. And just as their eyes swell with fatness, so their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff at other men, and they, they threaten uh, oppression. They speak with malice. So he, they're just—he's painting a really dark picture of these wicked. They're, they just go from bad to worse. And, and and so let me pause here because this is poetic language, and it's definitely different from how you and I speak, or, or at least it's different from how I speak. I don't know. This might be the way that you speak, but uh, I, I think that the psalmist is painting a vivid picture, but it might not be one with which we can identify easily. And so this. This, uh, <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't know if this is a, uh, a safe question or not, but how many of you love Westerns? I love Western films. I mean, maybe that makes me cliche. I, I work at Miracle Mountain Ranch and I love Westerns, but, but I love Westerns. Uh, the, the plot line is always predictable. The characters are exactly the same. The dialogue is boring. I love Westerns. They're fantastic. And, and it seems like in every Western that I've ever watched, there's that one uh, really, really bad guy, you know, and you know who he is. He's usually the, the cattle boss or the banker. He owns all the land, and he's after Widow McGreevy's ranch. You know what I mean? Right? And so then there's the love triangle between the good guy, he's usually Tom Selleck, and the bad guy and Widow McGreevy, who is way too young and attractive for a widow. And this, this bad guy, though, he's always refined. He keeps his, he's well-dressed. Think uh, Crossfire Trail, right, with the guy who plays Gibbs in NCIS. He's, uh, he's really well-dressed. He keeps his hands clean, but he is rotten to the core. He's rotten through and through. You, so you know this guy that I'm talking about. And what always happens to that guy in the end? Always. He gets it, right? He gets it. He, he, he meets his ignominious end, and it's usually by some sort of means that, that poetically just, you know what I'm saying, poetic justice. Um, he's dragged by his own cattle or something like that. If the bad guy got away, what would even be the point? <laughs> Why make a Western where the bad guy doesn't get it in the end? But that's exactly what's happening here. The wicked are wicked. They threaten oppression. They wear violence like a garment. And nothing happens to them. They're not getting their comeuppance. They're not getting their punishment. They're not getting the due reward of their error. They just go on to increase in riches. It's, it's, it's a, it, it seems unjust, unfitting. The world shouldn't work this way. But it does. The wicked goes from bad to worse, and he's still successful in everything that he does. And it continues to get worse. Look at verse 9. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. So no longer content to confine their wicked acts to their fellow man, these men now blaspheme against God. And in uh, verse 10, we see that people are turning to them. 
They're leading others astray with their speech, and nothing is happening to stop it. No one finds fault. The King James says the waters of a full cup are wrung out to them, meaning that they still find abundance wherever they go. And so the wicked keep blaspheming. In verse 11, how can God know? They say. They're doing this, they're, what they're doing is wrong, and they know what they're doing is wrong, but they think that they'll escape punishment. Is there knowledge in the Most High? They're taunting the people of God the same way that Elijah was taunting the prophets of Baal. And how does the, the, the psalmist wrap up his observations? He says in verse 12, Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease they increase in riches. Always at ease. And you can begin to see why the psalmist is ready to fall. Because here he is believing that, that God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart, and then not seeing this worked out in his daily experience. In verses 13 and 14, the wicked man seeks to justify himself. This is the wicked speaking now. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. This is the second of those three foundational truths I talked about. Here the wicked man gives the foundation for his thought. Now we see he's giving his justification for why he is the way that he is. Surely it's been in vain that I kept my heart clean. What's the wicked man saying? He's saying, I tried it your way, Asaph. I tried to be pure in heart. I tried to keep my hands clean. It didn't work. I was stricken every day. I was rebuked every morning. The wicked used to live by the psalmist's logic, and it didn't work for him. So he decided to go his way, and now he's humming along. Mr. Bluebird is on his shoulder. So here Asaph is. He's looking at the wicked's prosperity. He's looking at his own adversity, and he's wondering if it's worth it to go over to the other side. He says in verse 15, If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. He's wondering if it's worth it. Have you ever wondered if it's worth it? Have you ever wondered if it's worth it to, be in, 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 to keep your integrity? You're looking at your constant struggle against sin and you're saying, is it, is it just, would it be better for me to go over to the other side? Is it worth it? Have I kept my hands clean in vain? We do this. Have you ever told a lie because it's expedient? Have you ever done a slapdash job at work just to get ahead? Have you ever thought this way? Have you ever thought, perhaps, I should just live the way that they do? It seems to work for them. The psalmist is thinking this. He's wondering. And then we get to verse 16. But, when I thought to understand this, It seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the temple of God. Then I discerned their end. There's a turning point here. Now the psalmist's thinking has changed. He begins his thought process over again from another point of view. You remember when I said that the structure of the psalm preaches? This is where we get to that. So here he says, we've got our our first three truly, but as for me, for I was envious when I saw the prosperity of the wicked... He says, truly, you set them in slippery places. Here's the third foundational truth. The psalmist had nearly slipped when he saw the prosperity of the wicked, but now he sees that the wicked are about to fall. 
Surely the wicked are set in slippery places and God will make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, he says. Swept away utterly by terrors. Their life is like a dream, lasting for the night, remembered no more when the morning comes. For all their wealth, for all their prosperity, for all their ease and their health and their fatness, the wicked are here today and they are gone tomorrow. Scripture compares them to chaff on the wind, to the morning dew, here for the briefest moment and gone forever. Now the psalmist realizes that there is justice in the world. The wicked, having been comforted now, will be tormented forever, just as the rich man in Jesus' parable. You see, for all that the wicked have, they have one problem. They're wicked. For all that the wicked have, they have this one glaring, massive problem, and that is their wickedness. The psalmist didn't understand this at first. This is why he says in verses 21 to 22, he says, listen, when I, when I was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, when I was envious, he says, I was brutish and ignorant. I was as a beast toward you. He's saying, I was jealous of the wicked. How stupid. How brutish. How ignorant. Why would you be jealous of those whose actions today are simply garnering wrath for themselves tomorrow? Why be jealous of the man who dines in luxury over the fault line? Why be jealous of the yacht in the path of the hurricane? Now the psalmist sees his error. And so he says, truly, you've set them in slippery places. And then again, just as in the first half of the psalm, we see this contrastive statement, nevertheless, I'm continually with you. In in Hebrew, the phrase is the same as in verse 2, but as for me, nevertheless, I am continually with you. The wicked is destroyed in a moment, but as for me, I am continually with you. What comfort to be continually with God. Is this not far greater than riches or fame? or health, or success. That's why he says, you hold my right hand. Not only is the righteous man continually with God, but God holds his right hand. The psalmist was about to slip, and God reached out and held him. He holds his hand, and he will not let the psalmist slip. Think of the intimacy that is conveyed in this image. That God holds my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, he says. See, when the wicked man casts off God, he casts off all authority. He casts off all guidance, all counsel. He makes himself his highest authority, and that seems to work well. But what when the wicked man needs counsel? Who will give it to him? There's nothing left. There's no structure for him. There's no support for this man. He is, at that point, utterly alone. But the righteous... The righteous man is guided by God. And afterward you will receive me to glory, he says. And if the first three statements weren't weren't blessing enough, the psalmist has assurance of being received into glory by God. What a life this is. The psalmist is continually with God. God holds his right hand. God guides him with his counsel all the days of his life. And at the end, God will receive him into glory. What a life. What a life this is. And then we we come to the next verses, and I I think that this is one of the most beautiful expressions in Scripture. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. 
My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, my portion forever. What's the point? The point is that the man who has nothing but God has everything. While the man who has everything but God has nothing. I hope that this strikes you the way that it strikes me. Can you identify with the psalmist here? If, if it hasn't happened already, and, and I'm younger than a good deal of you, so um, I'm sure you know this better than I do, but if it hasn't happened already, then you will meet with troubles. There will come a day when your heart and your flesh will fail you. There will come a day when fear seizes you, when exhaustion takes you, when sin has you in its grip. In that day, will you be able to say with the psalmist, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Let's finish the equation here. What's the the ground? The ground first, he says, my feet had almost slipped because I was envious when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. What's the ground here? For behold... He says, those who are far from you will perish. You shall put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. And here's the final analysis. Those who are far away from God will perish. But for me, the psalmist says, it is good to be near God. The psalmist recognizes at the end that the righteous at his worst is better off than the wicked at his best. On your very worst day, righteous, righteous ones, you're better off than the wicked on his best day. So that's Psalm 73, boxed in. But I'd like to center in, at the time that we have remaining, on verses 16 and 17. Because we want to we understand uh, this change. I said at the beginning that we, we need to be able to converse with our own souls. And this is what the psalmist does. He admits, here's what I'm thinking, here's what I'm feeling. But then something changes radically. We want to center in on that change so that I can address my own sinful soul when, when things pop up and I'm angry or I'm fearful or I'm envious. You need to be able to address your own soul. You need to be able to see where you are and get to where you need to be. So let's see how the psalmist does that. Verses 16 and 17. When I fought to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. The psalmist is so perplexed at this point, he's almost given up. He's almost fallen because of his envy. He's tempted to give up altogether. And then he goes into the temple of God. And what changes? I mean, everything changes when the psalmist goes in to worship God in his temple. And so what is it about the temple? What about the temple changes everything for Asaph? I mean, maybe it could be the singing. You know, the, the, David had set up choirs that would sing in the temple when Solomon had built it. And so they, they would sing continually. Maybe that was what it was. Or maybe it was the fact that he was with his brothers in the faith that he goes in and he's with the community of faith. He's with the community of Israel. And he sees how good it is to be near God. Those, possibly. I don't uh, don't know. But here's what I think. Here's what I think it was. I think that the psalmist went into the temple and he saw the altar. The altar in Solomon's temple was massive. 
It was uh, uh, 30 feet by 30 feet, and it was 15 feet high. It was uh, totally covered in bronze. It's the first thing that you see when you walk into the temple, and it's unavoidable. You can't not see it. Sacrifices were performed at the temple on the altar every day, all day. All day, every day, goats and lambs and bulls were led up that ramp and killed in the place of worshipers. I think the the psalmist went into the temple and he saw that. And all of a sudden, the cost of being far from God and the mercy of being near God struck him. With every killing stroke, he saw how much God hates sin. God hates sin. You know that, don't you? He hates it. He is not ambivalent toward sin. This is not a preference that God holds. It is not an opinion that He has. The Almighty God hates sin. And it costs blood to cover it up. And then he saw how much God loves His people. With every sacrifice, he saw how much God loves His people. God hates sin, and so he demands that sacrifices for sin be made daily for His people to even come into His presence. And God loves His people. And so He makes a way for them to come into His presence. But you and I don't have a temple to go to. There is no temple anymore. There is no altar. There is No sacrifice for sin which remains. Is there anything for us? Of course there is. Of course there is. The temple was where God showed Himself to His people. It was where He made a sacrifice for their sins and made them holy. It was where they beheld the God of Israel. We don't have a temple. We have something far, far greater. At the cross, God showed Himself to us. At the cross, Jesus Christ made a sacrifice for sins to make us holy once and forever. At the cross, we beheld the God of Israel who took upon himself the curse that his people deserve to give them the righteousness that they don't. (laughs) Would you know how much God hates sin? Then look at the cross. Would you know how much God loves you? Then look at the cross. Friends, the cross is the final argument that we have. The cross is the only argument that we have. We have nothing else. Amen? We need nothing else. Listen listen to, uh, is this uh, top lady? Nothing in my hands I bring. He says, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul I to thy fountain fly. Wash me, Savior. Wash me, or I die. Friends, nothing in life will ultimately make sense if it is not framed by the cross of Jesus Christ. Nothing, nothing will make sense. This is all that we have. So what can we take from this? What what do we learn from the psalmist? Here's... There's a few points of of application. First, when we are perplexed about injustice or believe that we've been treated unfairly by God, Psalm 73 teaches us that we are to seek to understand from a viewpoint of faith. Faith first and then understanding. There was an old monk uh, back a 
thousand years ago, Anselm, who said that his motto was faith seeking understanding. He had a pupil who switched it entirely around. Not faith seeking understanding. It's not that I come to God as a supplicant, humbly believing, hearing the promise of his word, and then I seek to understand from that. His pupil, Abelard, said, no, 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 no. That's not how it works, God. Let's play it on my terms. First, I need to understand, and then, if it's good enough, I'll believe. Don't be like Abelard. Don't be like that. Faith, seeking understanding. Imagine if this second way, understanding, seeking faith, imagine if that was how the psalmist conducted himself here. He never would have gone into worship despite the perceived injustice that he felt. He never would have sought God. He never would have come to the temple. And he never would have any understanding. When you don't understand, when you feel betrayed or angry or hurt or alone, do not flee from God at that point. Don't flee from God. Don't attempt to hold Him at arm's length until you have put the pieces together for yourself. Rather, Run to Jesus. Worship God. Believe in Christ. And seek to understand while resting in His goodness. Don't run from Him. The psalmist says in in Psalm 39, Where can I go from Your presence? Where can I hide from You? If I go to the utter end of the sea, You're there. If I try to make my bed in the depths, You're there. Even there Your hand will guide me. I could say, to the day become as night around me, but even darkness is not dark to you. <laughs> Don't try to run from this, God. It won't work. It won't work. Faith seeking understanding. Secondly, to use the words of the psalmist, envy is brutish. It's brutish. Ignorant. Envy is, I believe, a common Christian sin. It's built into us at the ground level. I have six nieces and nephews, all under the age of seven. I can tell you as an expert, envy is built in at the ground level. You don't have to be taught envy. Envy is common. When we covet, here's the problem with envy. Here's why envy will never satisfy. When you and I covet, we don't want the stuff that the other person has. Not most of the time. We want the happiness that they have that's associated with the stuff that they have. You won't get it that way. <laughs> when I was young, I, uh, I, I had a friend. Uh, we were uh, joined at the hip, Luke and I. and, and um, I'm from western New York, and if you go up uh, around 390 there in Dansville, uh, Stony Brook is a, is a county park, a state park, I believe, and uh, it's, it's this burbling little brook over stone. It, there's no bed of sand most places, and so that's actually pretty cool because there's these natural rock slides down through the creek, and so you know it's this little channel in the rock, and you go down, and the water shoots you down there. It's, it's fun when you're eight years old, and uh, so Luke and I would go to, to Stony Brook, and we would slide. There was this one particular rock slide. We'd slide down, slide down, run up, slide down, run up. And he seemed so happy. I thought, I've got to slide down more than him because I will be happier than him. And so I beat myself to death, sliding down, running up so as I could be faster than him. And, you know, it's not just enough to be ahead of him. I've got to lap him, right? Oh, I got so tired. 
Do you think I was happy? I was not happy. (laughs) I was envious, but I wasn't happy. And I didn't want what he had. I wanted his happiness. The psalmist would not have been happy by emulating the wicked. So don't envy the wicked. Remember, the man who has nothing but Christ has everything. And the man who has everything but Christ has nothing. But most of us, I suspect, don't envy the wicked. I said envy is a common Christian problem. I believe that this envy is common among Christians, between Christians. Most of us, I don't think we envy the wicked. I suspect that if you're like me, you're more prone to envy your brother or your sister in the faith. Don't do that. Envy destroys relationships because envy has no regard for relationships, for distinction, for fatherly love. Envy doesn't say, if you think about two children, envy doesn't say, I want what the firstborn son has. Envy says, I want to be the firstborn son. When dad gives the firstborn a bike and the secondborn becomes envious and complains, dad can go out and get the same bike and give it to the secondborn. It won't help. Parents, you know this. It won't help. Why won't it help? Because the secondborn doesn't want a bike just like the firstborns. He wants to be given a bike as a firstborn. He wants to be the firstborn. When we envy, we're not after the stuff that the other person has. I want to be you. I want to be in your place. I want to be loved the way that you are loved. What is that? That has no regard for distinction, for fatherly love. Understand this, God loves you as a father loves his children. What father loves his children without distinction? You parents, do you give your children the exact same gifts at Christmas time? I'm not a parent, but I suspect that that's not very wise. Why? Your children are different, and you have a different relationship with each of your children. Listen to me, the Father loves you fully, as fully as he could ever love you. But he does not love you equally. Why would he? He gives this blessing to you, and he gives that trial to you. He doesn't love you equally, but he loves you as fully as he could ever love you. And so when we look at, well, I don't have the trials that he has, I, I, don't, I don't have the blessings that he has, and I have these trials over here, and God, why are you doing this to me? <laughs> you fall. You fall because you have no distinction, no regard for God's fatherly love. He loves you fully. So don't envy your brother or your sister in the faith. Envy his prudish. I, uh, I was uh, living in Minneapolis and I found myself pushed out, as it were. I'd built a community and then I thought I was going to leave and so I handed over the leadership of the small group that I had started to my best friend and I had uh, prepared to, to leave my work and, and I was going to move uh, down to Mississippi, strangely, and, and then things fell through. And I found myself still in Minneapolis, but now I was no longer the leader of my small group. Now I had no place to stay, and so I had to get an apartment by myself, and I had to get a new job, and it's a pretty nice job. It was a well-paying job, but, I, but it was something I hated. I was a manager at Target. I know, yeah, it's, it's pretty bad. And uh, I found envy welling up in me. I did nothing to stop it. I nearly died. Eight months later, I found myself in a hospital having just tried to commit suicide. 
because of envy. Because I had no regard for the love that God has for me as a child. I'm not my friend. I'm not my brother. You're not your friend. You're not your sister. You're not your co-worker. And God loves you as fully as He can ever love you. With distinction. Don't envy your brother and your sister in the faith. Envy is brutish. Thirdly and most importantly is this. Worship reorients the soul. We were made to worship, you and I. This is what we were created for. God made us because He is so good. He is so full. He has no needs. He can only overflow. And He said, let's create a world to overflow into. So you and I were made to see Him and to love Him, to treasure Him, to delight in Him, to serve Him in gladness. We were made to worship, you and I. And if we cease to orbit around God, then we will inevitably go off course with disastrous consequences. Worship is that which beholds God in the face of Jesus Christ and loves Him for it. You and I were made to worship. We were made to look at our Creator, our Sustainer, and our Redeemer and be so full of happiness and love and wonder that we just spill over like a thousand little fountains. The soul is made to bathe in worship. And when it does not, it grows dry and cracked and brittle. You know this. You can identify this in your own soul. I hope. I hope you know yourself that well. That you know that when you cease to worship, when you cease to go to God in prayer, when you cease to marvel at Him in His Word, when you cease to meet together with brothers and sisters in sweet, sweet fellowship centered around the throne of God, you know that you become small-souled and petty. That you become quick to anger, slow to listen, slow to reconcile, easily offended, thick-hearted, and thin-skinned. You know this, don't you? You feel this, don't you? I feel this in myself daily. So I, I go to God in prayer and in the Word. And it's like drinking cold water, isn't it? On a hot day. It's like bathing in a stream, in a mountain stream, so worship reorients us. Worship makes us who we are meant to be. Worship reorients the soul. So as you go, as you do life, as you live and work and eat and breathe and play, worship. Because the man who has Christ has everything. 